This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're back with you to talk about film. Um, I hope you're listening to this in 1.25 speed, like I do. Do you really? <laughs> ah! Have you tried that? Have you tried to, to, to change the speed on our voices sometimes, just for fun? I have not tried it in listening to the episodes but i listen at two times speed when we edit oh good yeah because <laughs> it takes the editing time down yes by a lot yes i i have to say i like myself better in 1.25 speed. <laughs> what's the difference I sound less meandering i sound like i know what i'm talking about and i'm very concise what Yes, like, it's so funny because I discovered this because of an accident. Basically, I accidentally had it in .125 speed when I was just, you know, like, listening back to one of the episodes, and I was like, man, I sound great. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I'm not stumbly-bumbly-fumbly lady. You're never stumbly-bumbly-fumbly lady. (laughs) Thank you for thank you for saying that. But you know how it is. Like you listen to your own voice and you're just like, Ugh, oh, like completely. gross. Completely. And um I was like, what is up with me? That I, the coffee was hitting that day. What happened? And then I realized, oh, I'm just like a little bit faster. And then I'm like, I gotta get in the zone for this. Like, yes. I don't know. I, I gotta either keep <laughs> listening to the podcast at 1.25 or just I don't talk. know, speed myself up. Yeah, you're gonna start are you gonna start to talk in 1.25? It'll be like the, like the Micro Machines guy. <laughs> We'd have to drink at least eight more cups of I know. This. I'm drinking hot coffee today that I made at home. So I have my cup that's basically the size of a soup bowl. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> in, like, in like 10 minutes, I'm going to be fucking zooming. I know. I know. And um, I actually drank a cup of coffee and then cracked open one of these canned lattes. Oh, I was damn. Like, Oh yeah, I need I need a little extra today, and I don't have time to make more coffee. So now I'm on like a gas station latte <laughs> on top of regular coffee. It's this is gonna be a one. I can what's what's tell. cracking me up is that we both chose movies that were over two hours long for this week. So we're both <laughs> yeah. like, we need all the coffee in the world to sum this up. <laughs> I know, I know exactly, exactly. You're you're, also, on, you're like living on one point two five speed with that coffee. Oh, I'm on like at least two times, if not more. <laughs> but that's now, all, my heart is racing at two times. So now, do you listen to every podcast that way now? Because I know that you have been digging into the Vanderpump universe via the podcast that every single fucking cast member apparently has. 
What? Why? What am I doing? This is such a dark road, don't you think? To listen to the Vanderpump cast members podcast? I absolutely think it's a dark road. (laughs) Especially because the way that Kristen has inserted herself in this narrative of what's happening drives me up a fucking wall. Because Kristen, I'm like, okay, two things can be true at the same time. You can be upset at Tom Sandoval and kind of righteous in your indignation that he is exactly who you've always said he is. But you are also still fucking insane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, two things like can that- be true at the same time. I know. And it's kind of how I feel about Jax. He's also, oh my God. like, making waves. And I'm Jax like- jumped on this. Did you see his Watch What, Happen- Watch what Happens Live with Britney? Oh, yes, I did. First and foremost, that skin is taut. He looks like the fucking skin alien from Doctor Who, who is just a face stretched over a frame. He must have had one of those, like, Tom and Jerry cartoon things where they, like, remove the face, shook it out like laundry, and then just put it back on. (laughs) Like, you know how anytime they would unzip their own skin, I was like, that's very strange. I feel like Jax unzipped his face skin, shook it out, and then put it back. I, I Okay, so I've been having, because of, like, all of the latest Vanderpump drama in the news, I have had several people in my life come to me and be like, what is up with all this? I don't even know what this show is. I don't know. Why is this in the New York Times? And so I've had to give them, like, a real quick elevator pitch mm-hmm. as to, like, what the show is. And I just, all I say is, this is a show that's been on for 10 years. It's a spinoff of a, a Real Housewives show. If the cast member is currently on the show, they're either in a lawsuit or getting a divorce. If they were on the show and are not on the show, it's because they've been canceled for racist tweets exactly. or something. You know, <laughs> like we're trying to get their, sing- their singular black co worker fired. <laughs> And implicating her in a theft that did not happen. Right. So you have so what's interesting in that in that to that point, really, is so now these canceled people have been uncanceled to come and like give a take on the latest drama, which is that two of the cast members of this reality show that were in this like group of friends that had this like insane, like Navy seals esque loyalty pack. Like I'm like, I love my friends, but not to this degree. I'm like, I don't understand like how, how friendships like this get formed where you're like, there's like a bunch of rules and regulations where certain people are not, they have to stay loyal to each other despite the fact that they all cheat on each other and all this shit. Exactly. Which is a prominent theme in one of the movies this week where you're like, what the fuck? But yeah, I don't understand how how they're friends because this is all based (laughs) on the premise that these are people who used to work together at one of Lisa Vanderpump's restaurants. And the restaurant has become such a minor plot point. It is all about the drama in their lives now. The restaurant is like, maybe they show 10 seconds of it every episode, every other episode. But they used to work together. You think I still even am in communication with half the people I worked at in restaurants with? No. Absolutely not. And they're fine people, but we all just went our separate fucking ways. Yeah. And to to be honest, I mean, 
I think the evolution of the show, I can't, first of all, I cannot believe it's been on for a decade. That is mm-hmm. too much. I've been watching it from day one. I remember when yeah, the first I, episode I, started and it was the end of an episode of Beverly Hills and it morphed into Sheena walking through Sir. And that's how they started Vanderpump. Yeah. I I wish I had said that I was a day one. I was an A1 from day one because I only started watching it when I moved to West Hollywood. <laughs> which is... I, and, I, and I really don't know why other than it felt like the neighborhood news. Like, I was like, right. oh, this is happening in my neighborhood. Like, one of the actual cast members that left the show but wasn't for racist reasons... lived like two buildings down from mine. So I just felt like, well, now I need to watch the show because it's happening where I live. And so, but then from that point, I was like, I'm in, I'm invested. Like I watched every single episode and now I'm caught up on 10 years worth of this bullshit. Years of pure drama. And if, if you don't know what we're talking about now, what's in the news now, one, you have, you do much better things with your time than I do. (laughs) I am a huge time-wasting motherfucker when it comes to this shit. And we're talking about the fact that Tom Sandoval and Ariana Maddox, who dated for eight years, got together on the show, are now split because Tom cheated on her with another cast member who I have to say is the most unintelligent and ridiculous person in the world. (laughs) And he cheated on Ariana, who's re- always been, like, the most down-to-earth, honest, yes. front-facing person on the show. And people are fucking livid. They're calling it Scandaval. Huh. <laughs> and it is rocking the world right now. It's rocking lives across the world right now. <laughs> the yeah. fact that this motherfucker cheated on Ariana, who, I have to say, Ariana, fantastic. And you know this. And I've mentioned this. Millie and I are also in a group chat about this. Yes. <laughs> and I've mentioned this in the group chat. I have said from pretty much day one that both Toms fucking sucked. Yeah, you Tom did. Schwartz is an idiot. He's a he's a an immature, inane motherfucker. I just can't stand his goofy like. Oh, like I, he's just he refuses to grow up. He's an absolute asshole. He does. Just violently awful things under the guise of, but I'm just a good guy. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. He sucks. And Sandoval is the most fame-seeking, mustachioed motherfucker I've ever seen. Every move he makes is so that he can increase his own image. And he is, again, like just quick to anger, absolute shithead. Neither of them are cute. I can't believe anyone is even dating them, but here you go. And I just, I can't stand any either of them. I have yeah. always thought they both fucking sucked. Yeah, I mean, I'm so envious of you because I definitely was a Sandoval apologist for many years. <laughs> I, and and here, here's what I think it's really about for me is that I think Jax colored the show yes. so much that oh, yeah. it made us not realize that there were other idiot assholes under our nose. Like, you know Completely. what I mean? Like his, his behavior was so poor and his vibe was so much a part of the show yes. that it meant that everybody else looked better <laughs> because of it. Completely. Including these two guys who are actually trash, yep. but 
you know, they weren't as trash, as much trash as the other guy or whatever. So they... Exactly. Exactly. Because... And the, the moment it was really cemented for me was when Jax was no longer... I believe Jax was no longer on the show at this moment. I could be incorrect. Don't tell me because I am rewatching everything from the beginning right now. So I'll figure it out eventually. But... There was a moment where Ariana was really upset and there was like a death or like something really tragic happening in her life. And Tom said, oh, that's sad. I'm going to go to Las Vegas and play with dump trucks with my friends. And I was like, at that moment, I'm fucking out on this dude forever. I don't care if he rescues dogs by the dozens. I don't care if he adopts 15 babies. I'm out on this guy. Yeah. Leaving his incredibly distraught girlfriend in her time of need to go play with trucks in Las Vegas. I hate him. Yeah. There there has been so many instances in in the course of this decades long show <laughs> where you're like God damn, this is this is bad. Like this, this is bad behavior. This is a bad choice. This is a bad thing, right? Absolutely. And, I mean, here here's the thing that I will say though about these guys. Because first of all, I feel like the show, yes, it's about like all of these servers that work in Lisa's restaurant. But but she's the fucking puppet master of all of this totally. stuff. Totally. Okay. And when it comes down to it, she needs a vehicle to allow her, like, fucking weird Austin Powers-ass jokes. And the only way to do that is if she has, like, idiot stud model boys around to be able to do that, right? Because it's like, that's the thing, is that it's like, look at all my employees, they're so beautiful and straight and bad, they're drunk, bad behavior. Like, aren't they so crazy and randy and sexy, baby? Yeah, you know, that's her vibe. (laughs) I think that was the actual dialogue from one of those calendar photo shoots (laughs) they used to do. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, yes, like she needs these show ponies to flail. Like this is like how, this is the whole brand of this is is that she's the puppet master of these like dumb straight guys, okay? Absolutely. I have to say, I, I am... I like a little corny, as you know. Like, I'm not afraid of a little corny. Like, when I found out that, like, all these people are originally from Florida, I was like, (laughs) that's it. Like, (laughs) I'm sold. And I think that's why I personally, you know, have been invested into the show because the undercurrent of the drama is the fact that these are trashy Florida models. It's it's a very Magic Mike-esque origin story, which I have a soft spot for. Absolutely. Right? And they are all now, the, they are the human version of the miniature ponies that Lisa owns. Yes, they're like her little jiggies, her little her little dogs that she dresses up in tuxedos and tra- traips, traipsing around West Hollywood, right? But it's like, oh, I there was a moment, I think, for Sandoval where once Jax made his exit, he was like rubbing his hands together like, it's my time to shine. Let's turn up the juice and see what shakes loose, fucking Beetlejuice style. Like, he was like, 
I'm the number now one guy. Now this guy's gone. I can be full on obnoxious. I'm getting fucking white guy dreads or whatever the hell. He changed his hair, got a mustache. Like he's like, I'm starting a band. I'm doing like, I'm going full on. And I'm like, I, I, this is a bridge too far for me, dude. Like I, I used to think that you were okay, a little corny, nope. which I appreciated. Now I'm like, now you're just too much. And you know for a fact that someone, maybe Lisa, but someone said to him, you are the number one guy now. Like, you are you can do whatever you want. You're the star of the show. And he took it and fucking ran with it. Yeah. Somebody gave him that note at some point, and they did not know what they were doing or what they right. were creating. Well, and that's the thing is that she's so invested in these Toms, right? Mm-hmm. That's the thing is that she loves the Toms because the Toms are like her most perfect invention. <laughs> she weird, you know, she like, weird scienced the fuck out of those dudes. Yes. She's like, let's give them their own bond. Let them be bad, naughty boys there. <laughs> she just like... <laughs> Which, by the way, Tom Schwartz was basically unemployed until he owned a bar. <laughs> Who the fuck invests in that dude? That's they don't. But that's the thing is that they don't even... Their function is not even to own a thing. It's right. just to party. Party in a bar. That's all they got to do. They they don't have to fucking care about whether or not there are paper towels in the fucking bathrooms. They're just like, they're just there to like do bumps. Absolutely. You know, and hang. Basically. I'm, I'm going to go so far as to say that the Toms are basically glorified Hooters girls. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I have to ask, okay, so you know what? And I uh, actually, we might have to get Casey in on this one too. Casey, our producer, who also is a Vanderpump fan, as we found out. And Obsessed. This is a pro Vanderpump podcast. Casey is the kind of person who just keeps getting better and better. The more, you, like, the more you find out, the more you're like, "This guy's awesome." Yes, and I and I think it's interesting that he also weighed in on Magic Mike. So it's like exactly, you, you have won us over, dude. You bring me in for the more complicated topics <laughs> the, to discuss. The true the, intellectual <laughs> deep diving, yeah. is what we call. Oh you. my god! Yeah. So let me ask this roundtable question. Okay. Okay. Do you think Tom Sandoval and Raquel have a future? What? <laughs> okay. Here I'm going to talk this out cuz my gut instinct is no way. <laughs> there is no Are they way. together now? Yeah, they're together now. <laughs> okay. Apparently Maybe. in recent weeks she has slept over at their house while Ariana was gone filming a Lifetime movie. Okay. Um, so they are together now. They were together, filmed together outside of the the reunion show, like chatting it up and being together and like decompressing together. Mm-hmm. So my, I saw those pictures. My gut, uh, naturally. So my gut instinct is to say no. But here's the thing: they are both exactly as idiotic as each other, so it might sure. work. Because she sure. is like out to lunch. All the time. There is nothing ha- – it is the most smooth-brained person I've ever seen on TV. 
Raquel's trajectory on the show is so fascinating mm-hmm. because she was such a like third or fourth tier person on the show that was like constantly trying to get on the show. Yep. Right. And she is so dumb, but she's so villainous. Yes. And her plan in a way worked. Yep. She's like the center of the universe now. Did anyone see uh, Ty West's Pearl? I oh, did. No. Yes. It just reminds, it's like she wants to be a star. Yeah. She wants to be at the center of this. And if you mm-hmm. go back in past seasons, it's like all of her storylines were talking to James Kennedy being like, you need to make up with the group. You need to get back in the group. Yep. So it's just, it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. To see sort of her trajectory from day one to where she's at now. And she has admitted that she was a fan of the show before she was on the show. So I even think her relationship with James was crafted. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. For her to be present on the show. Yes. I mean, he, too... To his credit, he seems like he would literally fall in love with any hot chick that came into his Mm -hmm. orbit, right? Completely. So, you know, he was going to fall in love with her regardless. But, like, yeah, I think it's interesting that she has suddenly become the center of the show because Mm -hmm. think about how many of the the cast members' boyfriends and girlfriends have come and went. Like, how come come Carter ain't on the show? How come, you know, (laughs) whoever the fuck, like... Bo. um, Bo. Bo. (laughs) Bo's gone. Well, listen, he had to take one for the team because, you know... Yeah, because Saucy got cut. Fucking racist. Maybe we have to cut that, but... (laughs) Well... (laughs) I think that's... that's... (laughs) Like, no, I think that's been proven. I read an interview with Stassi where, because she's the only one that hasn't creeped her way back on the show. Because, like, Jax, Kristen, all the old heads, yeah. they get they have gotten back in, but Stassi hasn't. And I read in an interview with her, she said, I miss reality television. I'm trying to get back in. <gasps> so I have a feeling she has tried to get back in, but just wasn't allowed back for whatever reason. Ooh, she's I don't too know. canceled. Too canceled. She's too, too canceled. canceled. You got to, you know, that's the thing, too, is that I feel like Jackson and Kristen were just so, they were just such the generators of the drama for so Mm -hmm. long that it felt like they, like, there was no way they weren't going to have their perspective be heard. Like, they were just... Mm-hmm. Ready to jump in at any time. Oh, there. Jax was the fucking master of things are going well. It's like clear seas. I'm just gonna drop in this nugget of something that I might have heard or might know. Like you know that Tom was fucking someone in Miami as soon as he started dating Ariana. Like he just loved to drop a nugget and walk away and watch the world burn. He was truly the master <laughs> at that. Yeah. Can I ask you guys a question? Yes. When so you've watched the whole new season. Yes. Right. Up to date. When you were watching it, like all this controversy aside that we know that has completely happened outside of the show as far as has been aired, what do you think of the show itself? Ooh. Without you know, because it's it didn't have it doesn't have Kristen, it doesn't have Jax, it doesn't have all these old characters. What do you think of the show itself as it currently stands? I think well, I have two minds. One, I think they are editing. Their editing of the show is designed to let us know that there's something coming. Like the way they are editing Ariana and Raquel is yeah. designed to let us know there's something on the horizon. But I also feel like this is the most boring cast. Like they've just yes. become boring people. They all have 
modern farmhouses in Valley Village or they're James who's like still doing his see you next Tuesday. James has weirdly become my favorite this season. <laughs> I I love James Kenneth. He is I mean he's a comedy. bad person. Yeah, he's a mess. But he's he is so funny. He is high comedy. But yeah, I think that without this there's kind of a lot of manufactured drama happening. Like Sheena's wedding drama. I'm like, this isn't drama. This is just Katie being a bitch and you know she's a bitch. Yeah. So fucking move on. Get your bridesmaid another room somewhere because she's not going to give it. Like it's just weird manufactured drama. And if it wasn't for what we know is coming, it would just be watching Katie be a bitch to everyone because she's getting divorced and using that as her basis for being a horrible person. Yeah. I actually think... That they're moving into their who's afraid of Virginia Woolf phase as Uh a cast and as a show. Like, (laughs) I feel like all all of their past, like their entire past are now coming home to roost. Like, all of the partying and all of the crap that they, now they're fucking real adults and they're all divorced and they all have lawsuits and they're all like, you know, they've become like, sort of like now the dark side, the actual dark side of, like, all of the shit that they were up to in their 20s. And I think that that's a more interesting show. I mean, it is fun to see young people make mistakes, I guess, and to, you know, fight in parking lots and, like, get (laughs) blasted. But it's also, like, now it's real. And, like, for some reason, I'm like, huh, this is actually kind of interesting. Like, just this scene of, like... Katie's divorce party with two people there after everybody left. And she's got this stack of bespoke solo cups for her divorce party that are going unused because everybody has left her party. Oh my is, God. To me, like the shit. Like, I'm like, <laughs> yes. Like, this shit is dark as fuck. And I'm kind of here for it. But then. You know, I'm that that to, I, I might be like of a party of one in that no, regard. Most people are not. like, God, this is boring as shit. But I'm like, yes, now they're crumbling and I'm kind of loving it. But no, I know? actually I'm going to take back what I said a little bit because I agree with that. <laughs> I agree that the darker version of these people is more interesting. I think that what I'm what I, I think what I was referring to is more that they they are no longer doing the drama. They're just yes. who they are now. So like Sheena is a hyperactive, like chihuahua of a person about any small, I- any any minor inconvenience. She's going to go to 12. Katie's an absolute fucking bitch. And she always has been. And I usually love a bitch. Like I love a bitch. But Katie is a miserable bitch. <laughs> well, but she's such a beta. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like she's, she is so ready to follow the mean popular girl like she's like where is my regina george i need to follow her anywhere that's why she's still hanging out with her friend what's her fuck like from christine Christine? kelly lip balm queen (laughs) yeah thank you for saying that i'm like what does christine kelly do what does she actually do i just want to say it's christina kelly i misspoke christina kelly is the friend's name (laughs) but yeah that's why she has her friend because that's someone she can be an asshole with well and like it, it to me is sort of like knowing now that she is like one of Lala's henchmen type of thing mm-hmm. after she was fat shamed by Lala for like a hundred years is like, yep. wow. That's, and she used like, to be Stasi's henchman. And then she was yes. like, she's, you're absolutely correct about that. 
You know? But I love it. I love seeing James is so on one. He's like, yeah, I'm drinking again. What of it? Yeah, I'm going to call these people out. Yeah, I'm sad that I'm not in the group as much as Raquel. Like, he's just all emotion this yeah. season, and I fucking love it. And he's making fun of himself, but he's also very funny. James has an awareness that is unprecedented on that show. Completely. Like, he has an awareness of the show, of of the greater culture, yes. and of the interpersonal relationships on the show. And he uses... He says things that are so concise and mean yeah. and funny that it just, it really shocks me. Yeah. But yeah, James is like very British in that way. Where he's like, I'm going to level you with one comment. Yeah. I was going to say, he's, he, there's no niceties about him. He doesn't, he didn't know how to, how to do that. So, I, I mean, I have to say, like, there's a part of me that will watch the show if it's on for 25 years. <laughs> And then there's a part of me that's like, this needs to die. And I and I'm of and I'm also like I waver back and forth on whether or not I think Lisa needs to. I mean, she she seems to be at least less doing her shtick this yes. season than in the past because it was like really sad. Oh my god, there like, was one season. Do you remember that season where she was fucking like ziplining over Las Vegas? Yes, I was out. I'm like, you're Lisa Vanderpump. You don't need to do this. Yes. Like, she just needs to go, uh, come in every couple episodes, collect the respect, everybody kisses the ring, and then she can go. Like, I don't, like, her kind of narrating her own, like, <laughs> look at my ponies, aren't they all so randy? Like, that whole thing. It's just like... <laughs> well, at least like, is not on Beverly Hills anymore, right? So right. this is like her only vehicle is her own show. Yeah. But she can't play, like, these are not, these are older ponies now. You can't expect them to put on the old razzle-dazzle. Like, they're fucking... They've got, like, custody battles and they're, you know, full-blown addicts, some of them. Like, there's... They're tired. They're tired There's people. divorces. Like, you can't just be like, aren't they so bad? It's like, no. They're suffering the consequences of that badness right now. Oh, Lala cries every episode now. Anything she, will set her off. <laughs> she would... Her podcast was... We're gonna have to probably cut this, but you know she's in our category, and I'm all every week. I look at the fucking charts, and I'm like, "Are we doing better than Give Them Lala?" I need to know. We're not anymore because everybody's listening to her fucking podcast because of this fucking drama, including me. And I was like, yeah. "I'm listening to Give Them Lala." Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? I'm working against my own interests in our category, our own we, podcast success. We are not cutting that. There's no way we're cutting that. <laughs> including me like i am. <laughs> well i i cannot wait for this reunion i have heard the gossip about the reunion i don't want to believe it i just i think that we've been going about this for a bit but i also just want to get your opinion i want to round table one thing um the house tom and ariana's house which she took out a second mortgage on to pay for oh, that fucking no. Schwartz and Sandy's bar. Not even her no. own sandwich shop. Took out a second mortgage for him. How should this house thing be resolved? How do you think it should be resolved? I I feel like Tom Sandoval, one of his most toxic traits is that he doesn't take accountability for the things he did wrong. And he's always the victim yes. in everything. And so he'll never do this, but he should give Ariana the house or, yes. and he should just move back to 
you know, his a bachelor pad in West Hollywood. That's what <laughs> that would be the did. healthy. Yeah, that's that. That would be the healthy thing to do. But yeah. she owns so much of that house. Yeah, I say burn it. I think it's cursed. <laughs> it's it's definitely it's on cursed ground. Mm-hmm. Like from Pet Cemetery, yeah, I I can't. Like to me, there's probably been so much. I mean, the pool parties alone, they should just burn that shit down to the ground. Mm-hmm. Let her collect the insurance. You know, it's like yeah. one less fake barn in Valley Village, right? Exactly. Like, but think, it's cursed. I think it is cursed, but I also think Tom should move out and get nothing. He should just go. Yeah. I agree. Ariana should own the house and then she should sell the house and use all the money she gets to set herself up for in perpetuity. Yeah. To open her sandwich shop. Open her shop. Invest in herself. Absolutely. He should just go. Just go quietly. I know all your businesses are failing now, Tom. I know you ain't got shit to stand on. And your mom invested $250,000. That I I hated that. That was that so was, that made me sick. Did you ever? Did either of you ever eat there before it was no. Schwartz and Sandy's? No, uh, yeah, no, I did. And uh, it doesn't look all that different. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. we just put up some uh, palm tree wallpaper. They are spending so much time being like, it's in the details, and we have to design a sound bath. And I'm like, it looks like a fucking restaurant. How about you just open it? Just open it. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing is that it's that's the that's their contribution is you know the decor the vibe. It did make me laugh when Lisa Vanderpump was making fun of their decor when she has like the most gaudy, yes! hideous <laughs> taste. <laughs> I have eaten at Villa Villa Blanca. You have? Oh yeah. That's the only and, one I've never been to. And it felt like I was inside Liberace's tomb. <laughs> Like, the design sense is not there. It's not what you think it is. Well, and that's why, that's what I think is secretly is what's going to happen is that now that she has all these, like, Las Vegas restaurants, they are so aligned with that tacky-ass fucking taste of hers that she's going to shut down everything else. Like, Pump and Sir are gone. Like, I actually did hear that they're thinking about shutting Pump down. But it's that thing where I'm like, her taste... Is is perfect for Vegas, exactly. You know, and that's and that's it. Like, shut shut all those other places down. Open, no one, no one needs them. Open all of these restaurants that are like a Liberace butthole restaurant somewhere else. <laughs> like you're inside an anus of a gaudy performer. I mean, those places were theme parks anyway. Like Completely. going to Sir was going to like a reality show theme park. Like, right. Nobody went for the food. Everyone's like, okay, like, where's the dull whip and the funnel cakes? Whatever the sir version of that is. And then we're just going to wait and see if any of the cast members show up. So, the rice balls or the goat cheese balls. They go for goat the goat cheese, cheese balls. balls. But yeah, and also nobody works there. What, are you going to go see Charlie? Nobody works there. <laughs> they fake work there. So people show up and they're like, we want to see the cast. And they're like, they don't actually work here. They work here on camera only. Well, I listen, I had to I'm glad that you guys were here to chop this up with me because it, I was like, besides the group text, nobody else in my life really fucking fucks with Vanderpump. And I'm like, I'm you know alone. We do. I'm nope. alone in my interests. <laughs> you know, we do. We always will. And thank you, Casey, for truly incredible thoughts and for being so invested in this universe with us. 
you thank thank you guys. For, uh, for <laughs> we should open this. a Vanderpump <laughs> channel on our Slack. <laughs> sure. Uh, do it now. <laughs> do it right now. What about movies now? <laughs> to my knowledge, none of the Vanderpump universe are in movies. So should we even still have this podcast? <laughs> yeah. I think we should just end it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> oh, wait. We have movies. We do. We have, we have a theme, and we have movies. Actually, I gotta say, the Vanderpump world doesn't seem too far off from what we'll be discussing this week in terms of our theme, right? This is true. This is true. Because let's talk about a theme. What is the theme for this week, Danielle? Our theme this week is I chump take the chump. <laughs> and this is you clearly came up with the name. <laughs> I I this is like a, a theme about marriages, yeah. right? And I think it, it's like we I wanted to discuss marriage and film, but in a way that felt different from what we usually see. Like it's not about the cute proposal. It's not about the stressful wedding. It's not about the family drama. This is about people who have been in a marriage for a bit and are maybe not loving it. Yeah, like dysfunctional marriages, which is obviously very interesting uh, in terms of, you know, what we just talked about, but also just sort of like from a film perspective, because I, to me, I feel like these are two probably most perfect examples of of this topic, right? Because Completely. they're kind of similar in a weird way, I would say, because they're both like pretty long. They, Our producer, Casey, so eloquently put it, he said that they're chamber dramas, which I totally agree. So basically like a contained story with only very few principal actors, right? And... Although they were they weren't like too far off from each other, like late sixties, early seventies, but there's also like different differences within them in terms of like how the marriages are playing out and the other people that are drawn into the drama. And I I personally think that this is an actual great double feature if you can stand I agree. if you can stand. The the high key emotions, it's a perfect double feature. And the length. If you have six hours to spare, yes. this is the best double feature we've ever given you. <laughs> yeah. If you have the guts, if you if have you the, the guts to sit through this. Yes. I have never been married, obviously, but I'm fascinated by marriage. Like, I mean, I, I see it every day in my life. I've talked about it on the podcast and I mean, even though I've never been married, like these movies actually make me really deeply process what what a marriage would be like. I mean, I'm just like, wow, like this is a this is a relationship that's very intense, and mm -hmm. you know, especially if you've been at it for a long time. And my God, I have been married, and part of the reason I wanted to dig into this theme is because I truly question the validity of marriage in general in the modern world. Yeah. And a lot of people say it's, oh, because we want to have children, we want all our names to be together. You can change your name without being married. Yeah. You can all have the same last name without being married. That's no yeah. longer viable. 
You can yeah. be a single parent. You can be a blended family. You can be anything you want without marriage. So I question the the kind of impulse that people have to do it after they've yeah. been together for a while or whatever. And I say that as someone who, and I don't talk about him a lot because I do respect his privacy, but I was, my ex-husband and I dated for eight years before we got married. Mm. And then we were married for two years. And I think getting married ruined our relationship mm. in a weird way that I will yeah. maybe one day write about. But it just wasn't for me. <laughs> and it yeah. I just don't think I just don't think it's it's a viable option for me. I think that again, you can have a great long life and long relationship with someone without having to recognize it legally, but I think a lot of people do because there's tax breaks and there's kids and there's all kinds of stuff. Or maybe it's just because they're modeling and mirroring the family they grew up in and they want to kind of they think it was valuable. They didn't have a monster family and they want to kind of replicate the good things. I don't know. But I truly yeah. question the validity of ma- of marriage in a modern world, especially when we still live in a world where some people can't either can't get married or get married and don't have the same rights <laughs> that a straight couple would have. Yeah. Well, no, and that's interesting, too, because, you know, like I said, both these movies take place a long time ago, like many, many, many years ago, where I think marriage felt more like a necessity for certain people. And it Mm -hmm. was a lot of like economic, you know, circumstances going on for certain people, Mm -hmm. whereas I think that's changed a lot. Well, this is part of the like primary issue with the second wave feminist movement that I think got the reason it got a lot of backlash from men is because it offered true freedom to women to not have to get married to be considered functioning real people in our world. Like they could now get credit cards on their own. They can get home loans on their own. They could like live a life without having to have a man sign off on it. And men freaked the fuck out when that happened. Yeah, I think that kind of sort of plays out in my movie a little bit. But I'm just excited about this. I mean, these are two, like, very important trademark, capital letters, films. And, like, these are two films that people, you know, cinephiles, people who love film have talked about forever and ever and ever. And I think they paved the way for a lot of, like, modern directors, too. So Mm -hmm. I am excited i think i'm going first you are going first let's get into it yes let's get into it so my movie for the theme i chump take the chump is uh, a movie from 1974 written and directed by igmar bergman and it's called scenes from a marriage you are i must have told him that i'm not igmar bergman (sighs) I feel like this is the first... Have, have we done an Igmar Bergman movie on this podcast no, before? we have no. not. I think I talked about Persona once, like a, like mm-hmm. when we did that episode about three women. Yes. I said it was like extra credit, but I don't think we did a no. full episode. Right. We didn't. Okay, okay. Well, uh, much like a lot of the people that we've talked about, these big heavy hitters of cinema, there's a lot of information about him in the world, and I... I can't spend a lot of time talking about him, but I mean, I can't stress enough how famous he is in terms of, you know, international directors, like one of the uh, biggest figures in world cinema. He's a filmmaker that 
probably your favorite filmmaker was inspired by. Mm-hmm. He had a very pro- prolific, long career. And so if you're at all interested about his life, you should definitely look him up or listen to other podcasts that have gone like four plus hours on him. And, uh, you know, I would love to sit here and talk about him and dissect him, but, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to keep this down to at least, what, a couple hours? Oh, we're, um, we're not doing that today? We're not going to turn this into a four or five hour podcast? Oh, shit. Damn. Well, I would have prepped. <laughs> I would have prepped. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We would have had to have like 12 cups of coffee. <laughs> but so Scenes from a Marriage is interesting because it was originally a six-part miniseries that was made for Swedish television in 1973. And eventually, I think in the next year, it was condensed into a theatrical version, which was played in movie theaters, you know, kind of everywhere. In, in Europe and abroad. So essentially, the theatrical version is just sort of like a shorter version of the miniseries. So that's why I think in last week's episode at the end, I told you guys not to watch the show, watch the theatrical version, because it's just, for our purposes, it's just easier to talk about, right? Right. And, you know, I, I think Bergman wrote this, you know, series slash theatrical film about the people around him in his life, including his parents and, you know, including his own marriages and the relationship that he had with Liv Ullman, who was the, you know, female lead in this film, right? So clearly it's like ripped from the headlines in that way. And even though this is technically a scripted film, it feels much like, like a cinema verite documentary Okay, like even Liv Ullman herself, like I read somewhere that she felt like she was filming a documentary when they were making this film, right? And we see this a lot now, especially like this type of style. It's very prevalent, even in TV, because this whole film has a very natural style of dialogue. And like Casey said, it's like a chamber film. It's very hyper-focused on these characters on this couple essentially and this movie was very influential like this whole series the whole thing was very influential i mean i've read you know richard linklater he's talked about it being an influence on the before trilogy i think there certainly wouldn't be a movie like marriage story by noel baumbach if it hadn't been for this film Mm -hmm. so i feel like it's a classic in that way and if I'm going to do a one-sentence synopsis of Scenes from a Marriage... Ooh. Ooh, bitch. <laughs> I know. It was a monumental task. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to distill it down to this. This movie is a painstakingly detailed account of a married couple on the verge of total collapse. Beautiful. Right? Okay, so let me, let me just get through this part because you got to know who these characters are. So your principals are a married couple named Johan... And Marianne. They're played by the Swedish actors Erlen Josephson and Liv Ullman. At the beginning of the movie, they are being interviewed by a reporter. And it almost seems like to me, they're kind of, it's almost like they're sitting on the couch from when Harry met Sally in a weird way. And they're and, and basically they're just talking about how great of a couple they are. 
right? Yeah. And, you know, they're obviously being interviewed by somebody, so they're they're kind of the picture of marital success at this point. And it's also the only time you see their children. Like, they talk yes. about their children throughout the film, but you only see them in this scene. Yes. I, I actually think that's great yeah. for reasons we'll, we get, we'll get into in a little bit but i that is fascinating to me you know basically it's setting this setting them up as being this perfect couple right johan is a professor of psychology marianne oddly enough is a divorce lawyer and so they're very affluent you know johan says we're indecently fortunate right um, and it's true. I mean, they're, they've been together for a decade. And at this point, they seem to be totally in stride. They're just comfortable, upper middle class white people. It's like they're the, the picture of success. Right. And as the movie begins to roll out in these like first few minutes, it becomes pretty obvious what their dynamic is. Like, Johan is what I would consider like one of the cocky intellectual types. Mm-hmm. He he knows that he's smarter than you, right? He <laughs> seems like he's got some kind of libertarian tendencies at times. Like looks wise, to, if I if I were gonna describe him, he he's kind of like a Swedish Elliot Gould with a beard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he, he's kind of got that quality to him. An insult to Elliot Gould, but I'll take it. <laughs> I just think, you know, it. prominent facial features, you know, kind yes. of like a Dark thinking eyes. man's heartthrob type, right? And then you've got Marianne's wife. She is very much the pretty passive woman, right? Mm-hmm. Compassionate, doting, just kind of goes along with whatever he says I mean, we have definitely seen this type of couple before. Make no mistake. Yeah. Like when he's describing himself, he's like, I'm confident and I'm this and I'm that. And when it comes time for her to describe herself to this interviewer, she's like, I'm a wife and a mother and a a divorce attorney sometimes, but mostly a wife and a mother. And you can tell the interviewer is trying to like drag stuff out of her. And she's like, nope, that's all I'm giving you. That's who I am. (laughs) Right. Right. Yep. So after the sequence... It kind of moves into, and like I said, because this was based on a miniseries, think about it as, in terms of episodes, right? So, like, there, you could kind of tell, I think, that there were, the story kind of moves like episodic, you know, TV, but it's just been condensed. Um, so, it kind of cuts to this sequence quickly after this, where they have some friends over at their place, and it's this this other married couple named Peter and Katerina, who are played by I'm gonna butcher this. I, I hope I'm I hope I'm not doing it too badly, but Jan Malmsjo. I think it's Jan Malmsjo. Yeah, I'm gonna just l- let you say it. I'm not gonna repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, uh, <laughs> I'm probably still saying the last name wrong, but I think the first name is Jan. I think. Yes. But he's a very famous Swedish actor. <laughs> he, he was in the business for a long time. Okay. So he's he's Peter. And then Katarina is played by B.B. Anderson, who, as you know, if you were in a Bergman, she was in his company of actors along with Liv Ullman. And she was in Persona with Liv Ullman, which we talked about. So 
these four are having dinner and drinks, and then the evening invariably devolves into Peter and Katerina having truly a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf style blowout with each other about their marriage. Okay. And it's all happening in front of their friends. Joan and Marianne are watching it go down and they're like, oh shit. Because like the barbs are flying. It's nasty. I mean, if you're at a dinner party and one of your friends says to their partner, I need to wash you out of my genitals, it is time to just like rinse the coffee cups and send everybody home. Have you ever been in this situation before where you've watched like people fighting in this way? Absolutely. I have been the watcher and I have been the fighter. Ooh, interesting. And it is uncomfortable in both instances. Like, not to yeah. this level of, like, insult, but I have been, like, in relationships where, oh, we're having an argument, and then we have to go do something public-facing, but we're still pissed at each other, so we're just being, like, really slyly nasty and yeah. short. But being around the couple that's fighting is very awkward. Because, like, yeah. especially in this film where they present it as... Well, there are good friends. We can tell them. And I'm like, ooh, yeah. but should you? You can, you can, but should you? Is this the time and place for this? Yeah. It's so funny because I've, I've, I've witnessed it too. And I always reference this movie and your movie. Like, I'm always <laughs> like, oh, girl, like, I was over at Peter and Katrina's house the other night. And, man, it was a real, like, scenes from a marriage who's afraid, <laughs> afraid of Virginia Wolf scene. You know, like, I, it's it, it's become, like, the like reference point. Yeah, yeah, the shorthand reference point for being in an awkward situation with a couple. I love it. I <laughs> you know, love like, it. the dirty laundry is just being aired, and you're like, I'm sitting here, I can't do anything, this is so fucked up. <laughs> it is so awkward, and I, I think, I feel like I've reached a point in my life where I don't have those friends anymore. <laughs> like, I yeah. can't deal with it. So if I recognize that you're in, an in like, a part of a, a couple that is constantly fighting, I am not hanging out with you that much. Yeah. I feel like most people who have gotten to that fear pitch are now divorced and they're just living yes. separate lives and taking art classes and <laughs> be, <laughs> being on their own. So, you know, this is an interesting uh, sort of reference point for the film because it's like here you have this couple who has just been set up as this perfect couple. Then they're watching pretty much everybody around them kind of make them question what they're doing. So you've got their their friends who are fighting. Then the next day, Marianne, who is, again, a divorce lawyer, she meets with an uh, older woman who comes to her and says, I want a divorce. And they have this conversation that basically Marianne is shook by. She's basically like, uh, well, here's a woman who's probably 20 years older than me who's basically like, the love is gone, I want out. And, you know, maybe that the wheels start turning. That was a riveting scene, and it's not just yeah. because it was kind of prophetic, but I think that at one point she mentions that she wanted to leave five years into her 20-year marriage. Wow. Like, she just hung out for 15 years because her husband said, well, wait for the kids to grow up, and then... But the, while during that 15 years, he was still trying to, like, win her over into marriage. And then she said that at one point that she knew that it was a loveless marriage and that she never loved her children. Oof, yeah. And this is a direct quote. I wrote this shit down because I was like, God damn. She says, 
And I think this is, again, Marianne is shaken. She says, the life I've led has stifled my potential. Yeah. Like, again, talking about second wave feminism and like a lot of women (laughs) came out of the 60s and 70s feeling like, I ain't doing this shit. Yeah. It is not for me. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, I I had read at several points that this movie might have contributed to an uptick in divorce. Really? Yes, in in ah. Europe in the 70s. Now, like there has been people that debunked it and, and have said and it wasn't just the f- movie. It was the cultural right. upheaval of, you know, the early to mid 70s of of women's liberation and stuff like that too, obviously. But to me, it's not surprising if it did because this shit is going hard. Like, you're not watching this movie for more than 20 minutes and you're like, there is some dark truths being said right now. And, like, it's dark from a modern perspective, but in back in that day, you're probably like, nobody is is talking about marriage and kids like this. Like, absolutely. It's shocking. Um, and it also re- and that raises the question. Like I love that you put it that way because that raises the question too of like, should you be saying this shit to your partner? Like, is that closeness that you can say the most fucked up thing in the world to them and expect them to just take it? I can't answer that because I'm not, like <laughs> I do not. I I I would say it probably, and I'm probably wrong. Um, but that's I'm I'm no measure of success when it comes to that, right? But to me. Yeah, I mean, there is that point where you're like, should you be that honest? I don't know. Like, what is... That's why every marriage is dark. As I said before, (laughs) every marriage is dark. Especially the marriages in this film. Because that's... This is... So this is what happens immediately after this, okay? Johan comes home from a business trip. Marianne is thrilled, that he's home. She's like doting on him. Like, I want to make you sandwiches. I want to do, you know, like, are you hungry? Like, let's hang out. I missed you. Blah, 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 blah. And of course, Johan drops the fucking atomic bomb and says, I've fallen in love with somebody else. It's a woman from work named Paula. Okay. And they're on vacation. This is their vacation home that he's soiling with this truth. Yes. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have seen that movie, An Unmarried Woman with mm-hmm. Jill Clayburgh. If you haven't, it's excellent. You should get it. It's on Criterion Collection. But th- that movie really came to mind for me when I was watching the scene again because it goes down very similarly in that movie, in An Unmarried Woman, where the husband, they're just doing something one day and then the husband just drops in the fact that not only is he having an affair, but he's in love with someone else. Mm -hmm. And in both movies, of course, a much younger woman, okay? Mm -hmm. And that he is leaving ASAP. Which is, to me, the most shocking part of it, almost. Because that's the thing, is that Johan tells Marianne, you know, he's dropped this bomb, He's like, this is the news. I'm leaving tomorrow, and I'm going to be gone for at least six or seven months. I mean, this motherfucker just goes so hard. And 
it is devastating to watch her try to process that. A hundred percent. And then I started thinking, because part of what I think is shocking to me personally about how he's saying it, not only in the fact that he's being just like super cavalier and cruel about it, is the fact that he, it's clear that he had already made a plan. Yes. Okay. And is that ultimately less cruel than to just be like, I don't know, I'm just in love with somebody and I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know, I don't know what to do. I think it's way, it's so much more cruel because he, he goes on to say that like, she's, she's like, how are you going to live for six months in Paris? And he's like, well, I sold the boat and I'm on sabbatical. It'll be fine. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, it's so much more cruel to have that level of planning because to me, that indicates that you never intended to give her a chance and you never intended to, to, to save your marriage. You never wanted, like right. in that moment, you were like, I'm getting out no matter what. And I'm not going to give anyone a chance to stop me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I kind of see it on both sides, right? Because you're like, there is a tidiness to it that's like, okay, well then if it's already been decided, then you can go fuck off now and I can move on with my life. Exactly. It's a real rip the bandaid off kind of feeling. Yeah. But I do agree too that, yeah, it's fucked up because it's like, oh, well you just created this entire new phase of our lives without me like you've already figured this out uh, the planning has been done without me i mean i i don't know it is i'm of two minds about it yeah and it actually made me start thinking about the scandal weirdly <laughs> sick it's sick the vanderpump influence is sick but you know so he's a fucking dick in this moment i mean oh, he says doesn't even the plan sh- on do taking care he's like i'll send child support but i don't need to see the kids like what the fuck yeah, and at one point he says something like, oh, I've been waiting to be rid of you for, like, four years, which yeah. is just like, dude, fuck you, you know? And the thing that, to your point, makes it very hard to watch is that, you know, Marianne's, like, she just goes completely into denial mode almost immediately. Like, she's not snapping into the anger. She's being very accommodating and nice about it, which, of course, this is not the reaction that we all want her to have. Right. But the reality is that she does not know her value outside of this man. Oh, yeah. She's, like, still attempting to pack his suitcase while he leaves for his affair. And it, to me, translates to a moment where she's trying to maintain her reality because she just has no concept of who she is outside of this. Yeah. This relationship. She's like, let me set the alarm so you can leave me tomorrow. I mean, she's just, it's like she can't, Oof. her processing of it is, is. I mean, we. it's uncomfortable because you want her to have that moment of being like, fuck you. But no, she's just like, business as usual, except there's one thing that's mm-hmm. different. Um, you know, because she's like, she's begging him to stay the night and to sleep in the bed with her. And, and she wants him to say he's coming back and... And and meanwhile, you know, Johan is literally just sitting there being like, I, he wants to rid himself of the obligation of this marriage. And, you know, he's decided the best way to do that is to just be very cruel and short with her. And it just sucks. It's just a hard scene to watch. So mm. then you cut to like six months later or whatever, and he comes back around after being with Paula. And, you know, things are not really that much better. I mean, he forgot his kid's birthday, which, like, like you said, to me, it's really interesting that they do not show the kids beyond the first 
minute or two of the film, right? Because they're referenced, obviously, but they're never in the physical realm in the film. And I think it's interesting because a lot of movies about divorce give the kids a big role, I think. Yes. Like, you know, if you think about, like, Kramer versus Kramer and Marriage Story, and even in An Unmarried Woman, you know, their daughter is in the film. So the idea of them not showing the kids in Scenes from Marriage, I think it keeps the focus on them as a couple. Yes. You know, which is interesting. It's a it's an interesting uh, technique, I think. Yeah, it's a very interesting choice. and I think And I like it because I think that it's, it's natural for you to wonder what about the kids. And as soon as you start thinking, like you're listening to them talk and you're like thinking, what about the kids? And they do, re- they mention them like shortly yeah. after, like you'll be like, but then you realize like, oh, I'm thinking this because in this modern sense, that's what a lot of divorce has become about. It's the family right. unit. And this film seems to be saying, you know, we want to try to understand these two people who created this unit. And I really, I love that. I love that yeah. the kids are not shown. They kind of, they're kind of like a specter over the marriage and not like a crucial part of the marriage. Right. Because I, I agree. Showing the kids, I think, makes the stakes different for them in a weird mm-hmm. way. And so when you kind of take that out of the equation as a viewer, you're really able to just focus on the, the two of their, you know, the, these two people's relationship and the dynamics within it between the two of them. And then all the other outside factors like parents and children and that kind of stuff kind of go go by the wayside, which I I, I don't know. I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's a good technique too, right? So he's back. You know, things are not much better. Of course, he tries to sleep with her, fuck her, right? But she's like, I can't do this because I'm still in love with you, and you can't just come back here and start all this shit again with me. I'm just I'll never be able to get over if you do this, right? And then this is one of the most enraging parts of this film for me, and I don't know if it's because this has actually happened to me before. In this moment, she starts telling him, look, I'm in therapy, I'm writing poetry, can I read you one of my poems? Okay? And so she opens up her notebook and then she she starts reading this poem that she's written about her life. And it's basically this entire piece about how she's always just done what people have told her to do and she doesn't know herself and, you know, Igmar Bergman, the director, is inserting these photos of, I guess, Liv Ullman when she was a child and a teenager. <laughs> Which, I gotta stop you for one second and say, the most incredible photo is where she's holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a squirrel by the tail in the other. <laughs> yeah. I could build a whole universe off of that picture, but I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. They're great, they're great photos. I and I, But I also think that, like, showing those photos makes, like, what she's saying in that moment just really important. And it's a very powerful moment of the film, okay? Mm-hmm. And then after Marianne's done reading it, she realizes that Joan fell asleep. That motherfucker. And that enrages me. Like, and I... It also sets up the whole dynamic for their fucking relationship. He doesn't yep. listen to her. He doesn't care about her life at all. Yes. And uh, I'm not going to get into details about my own experience with that, but I... That is a turning point moment. Let's just Ugh. say that. Like, someone right. fell asleep while you were pouring your heart out. Oh, yeah. Fucking... Mm. You are out of here, motherfucker. Never again. Um, anyway, so, uh, but, you know, she, the problem here is that that happens 
And then they still meet up over the years. Like the film continues on. It starts spanning time. They meet up every couple years trying to get the divorce paper signed. And the power dynamic is just changing between the two of them every time, right? Mm -hmm. At one moment, you know, it seems like Marianne still pines for this piece of shit. But then the next time they're together, she's angry and activated and he's groveling and he wishes that he could come home because he's sick of Paula. No shit. (laughs) And, And that's the thing is that when you think about this movie coming out around the time of like women's liberation around the world, you know, there was a feeling, I think, within me when I'm when I'm watching this film of wanting Marianne to understand herself and her value and to be yes. th- stay in that moment of activation of like he's a bad dude this like we I I need to leave him and never look back right mm-hmm. and you think she's getting to that in that divorce scene like where he, she's trying to get him to sign the papers she says yeah. some really powerful shit there but then that scene takes a very dark turn very dark turn where you know it kind of devolves into this, you know, physical fight. And it's really hard to watch. And it's not glamorous. And it's just, you know, like some kind of like physical manifestation of everything that's been happening to this couple. And it's just, it's, it's just that part of the film where you're like, wow. Like it really is, is shocking. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is that, you know, even though these things are happening, they're still, like, wrestling with each other in that other way, which is that I'm bonded to this person. I hate this person. Mm-hmm. I love this person. I can't wait to move away from this person. Like, it's just that back and forth that's kind of, like, it's real, though. I mean, as much yeah. as it's frustrating, it's real. And I think everybody knows that to some certain degree of... of being in these very complicated relationships with people. And, like, the thing, I think if there is a slight miss, and I almost can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm saying it, if there's a slight miss of this film, it's that I feel like the Johan character never really becomes likable. Absolutely not. Never. Never. So... Because I, as much as I do sympathize with Marianne, I, 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 and and obviously as a woman, I'm drawn to her story, but I also feel like he's a bastard, and he kind of stays a bastard. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not, maybe I'm not suggesting he should have been more likable, but I feel like it's interesting because even though he truly is the bad guy for the majority, if not all, of this film. I, I, you do get the sense that it's complicated between the two of them. Like, as much as I'm, my heart screams, leave him, mm-hmm. he, I, I know it's complicated, girl, but you got to get out of this thing. I, I get, I still get it. He could be that bad of a guy and and she could still want to reconcile, right? Right. Well, yeah, I think that that's part of the, the frustration. Part of the frustration for me is that it, it's not even that he stays a bad guy as much as he's completely unwilling to change ever. He will never give her any comfort in that way that to show that to showcase that he's able to adapt to whatever their relationship is in the moment. He just, he's very stagnant about his emotional life. And they talk about it in that divorce paper signing section um, that's called the literates. 
and he, you know, he talks about it, but he doesn't do anything about it. Yeah. And you're like, well, I don't want the talk. I want the action. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and, and the film continues on like that film. The That's the interesting part is that it, it it's kind of hard to give away the ending necessarily, but it's like, you know, it just is, I think, very realistic. It, it doesn't have like a tidy ending. This entire film is not tidy. I mean, it's, it's right. the thing that it does the best is that it's very articulate about what it's trying to communicate. Like it's saying like, here's our two people that have very complicated feelings. They are also articulate about those feelings. So they're able to kind of express the things that we wish we could express, you know? Right. And I think that, you know, this is, it's fascinating. It's excruciating at times, but I think it's just kind of like, it's, it, to me, it's, it's remarkable. Like, I think this movie is incredible. I mean, the, the original series is great too. I've seen them both. Yeah. And I, I just think it's kind of like, I don't want to be like too dramatic about it, but it's such a watershed type of ex- film experience. I mean, it's just really like you're in the middle of a relationship with, t- Absolutely. with two people. And I haven't seen the re- I haven't seen the remake. I don't know if you saw the remake. Yes, I watched okay. the remake recently, um, and I liked it. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I think that they they make some interesting changes in order to bring it up to present date. So there's like a lot of gender swapping in the film in terms of, you know, who makes the money. Like she's kind of the breadwinner of the family. And, you know, it just, it's it's interesting, I think. But I, I really love, you know, I think Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain do a pretty incredible job of filming. And there's a lot of scenes where it almost feels like you're watching a play because they're, where like an entire 20 minute scene is shot consecutively like there's no like they do one take and so it's really really fraught so yeah i like i like the update but i love i love this movie i think that it's it's one of the first times i think people got to feel like they were in a dark relationship not just in like a happy relationship but yeah i loved it yeah i do too and i mean of course you guys know i am a big fan of the darkness I've I've gone on record saying it many times. I'm like, I like a dark thing. I mean, there's a reason why I like this season of Vanderpump. Let's get serious. But I'm just I wish you had any inclination to watch the bat the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Cause there is a part in The Dark Knight Rises where Tom Hardy says, You merely adopted the darkness. I was born into it. Ooh. <laughs> and that is you all over. <laughs> Well, you know, there are certain people who can't, they don't like this level of human, I don't know, human interaction or human Mm -hmm. character. I mean, I get it. Like, there are people who don't want to get down to this molecular level of, you know, behavior, of human behavior. Because it is dark and it does make you have to process, like, people's dark sides and you know like i said i i'm i'm no stranger to it and i actually kind of love it because i'm fascinated by it but this movie is hard to watch i mean yeah i watched what was it i think it was on the criterion channel um where there was one one of you know how they have those adventures and movie going series Mm -hmm. things where they interview you know famous celebrities about their favorite movies and i think michael Sarah was interviewed about this movie and he was like either him or Peter who interviewed him was like, 
don't watch this movie on when you're starting a relationship or on Valentine's Day or something like that. <laughs> like, you know, it's like one of those, you know, if you want to stay in a relationship with somebody, do not watch this movie together. Oh, damn. Yeah. Although, you know, in my mind, I was like, this would be a perfect Valentine's Day movie. But Same. You know, same. I was like, I want to. I want to watch it at the beginning of every relationship and really <laughs> suss this shit out. How do you feel about Yoan? Yoan. Yeah, let's watch this and Salo 120 Days of Sodom together on Valentine's Day. <laughs> anyway, I listen. I'm I'm glad we got to, to talk about this. I I was happy to have seen it again. It'd been a while, and yeah. I just really I really love it. I think it's a masterpiece. It truly is. I'm so glad you brought it to the pod. Yeah. Speaking of masterpieces. Ooh, I think my film also influenced a lot of films, possibly even this one. Um, yes. At the time it was released, it was very controversial, which I'll get into. Um, yes. But my film was released in 1966. It was directed by Mike Nichols. The screenplay is by Ernest Lehman, but it's based on a play by Edward Albee. And my movie is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? You see, George didn't have much push. He wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was sort of a flop. A great, big, fat flop. So I'm going to give a one-sentence synopsis about the movie. I'm going to try. Okay. Uh, My one-sentence synopsis is, two deeply drunk and dysfunctional people inflict a night of volatility and emotional damage on an innocent couple. (laughs) True. <laughs> like sounds like a horror movie, right? Completely. It is it is a horror movie if you from certain certain aspects. Totally, totally. But this movie is based on a play by Edward Albee. And um the there's a an interview in the Paris Review where he says that the title of the play means Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Who's Afraid of Living Life Without False Illusions? Um so it's not about the writer, Virginia Woolf. And they kind of, you know. He kind of dismissed. A lot of people thought that when it first came out, and he's like, "No, it's not about actual Virginia Woolf. It's kind of about characters who are shirking like societal norms in that moment." Right. And the way they do it is, we're focusing on on an older couple and a younger couple. So you have Martha, who's this shrieking wife, who informs George, who is our university professor husband, that they're having a new professor, a young professor and his wife over for drinks, even though they've just left a party and are completely soused. And he's like, seriously? We're having these two fuck... And she's like, well, my dad said to be nice to them. And as it turns out, her dad is the president of the university where George works. But because this is such a, a... It is definitely a chamber movie and it's such a limited cast. It's four roles. You know, you're seeing four people. It's worth it to mention who's playing those characters. So Elizabeth Taylor plays Martha. Richard Burton plays George. George Siegel is Nick. And Sandy Dennis plays Honey. But it's this very tight tightly wound cast. Um, and I think their choices for these parts were brilliant, um, especially Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, if you did not know, were married a couple of times to each other. They had a very, very volatile relationship. Uh, there's a book about their marriage called Furious Love that I recommend reading. And it's just wild to read about these two. And it kind of was like... Like, Elizabeth Taylor was already a superstar when she met Richard Burton, who was a stage actor. And a lot of their friction was based in him never really being able to adapt to her fame. 
it's it's just it's very very interesting to read um but so that so in in this film there were a lot of comparisons made at the time it came out to their actual relationship <laughs> yeah yeah cuz their actual relationship was not easygoing i actually there's a book um called mike nichols a life and it's written by mark harris and they talk about filming this movie uh that he directed there are definitely some funny fucking moments because one uh, one other thing about this play and this movie is that it was really a lightning rod of controversy in terms of the language that was used. So in this Mike Nichols book, there's one point where they say in a memo to the studio, a PCA representative had annotated the play script starting with Jesus H. Christ on page one, flagged every goddamn angel tits, son of a bitch, and hump the hostess as unacceptable. Like this movie, the language that was used was already setting this up to be a very controversial film. And it was also controversial in terms of how it was seen to portray marriage. There was nothing like this that had been done before. And I think that it's just, it's really interesting to read in this book about Mike Nichols what happened on the set or in the casting of this movie. There's also a really, <laughs> a really funny part. Mike Nichols was also such a son of a bitch on this set. So there's this point where the writer of the film said, I don't like his glasses, said Sam Osteen, the film editor who had become one of Nichols' closest creative partners. Mike said that they fit Burton's character So Ernie said, well, what if it comes to the last day and we have to go one way and I don't want him to wear the glasses? Well, said Mike, I'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to wear the glasses. Oh, God, it was so, it's just so fucking funny. Like, I'll just kill you. Like, imagine a fucking director just being like, I will murder the writer if they don't agree (laughs) with this. And there was also a lot of weirdness on the set, particularly from Burton and Taylor, there was, I guess apparently they wouldn't, they wouldn't come to set before 10 and they would leave at six. So, so Mike Nichols says, and again, this comes from his book, from the book about him by Mark Harris. They wouldn't come to to set before 10 or after six. Their epic meal breaks, which continued from rehearsal straight through the film's production, would eventually drive the film hugely over budget and 30 days over schedule. Mm Mm-hmm. The delays incensed Nichols. He'd walk around saying, cocksuckers, I hate their fucking guts. (laughs) (laughs) So the energy of the film in the making of the film very much translates to what we're seeing on screen, unfortunately. Um, Or maybe fortunately, because it resulted in a pretty phenomenal movie, I think. So all four actors were nominated for Academy Awards when this film came out. Taylor and Burton were were nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress, and George Siegel and Sandy Dennis were um, were nominated for Best Support for Supporting Oscars, and um, Elizabeth Taylor and Sandy Dennis won, mm. um, which was huge for this film. Again, very controversial movie. Jack Valenti, who was the president of the Motion Picture Association of America at the time, um, said the it was the first controver- controversial film he had to deal with, and it was mostly due to the language. Um, mm-hmm. So they had a lot of, um, like, he kind of, there were a lot of conversations about it, and they capitulated on 
including hump the hostess, but leaving out the word screw. And he said it was a it was a retention of hump the hostess, but I was very uneasy over the meeting. So people were having a fucking heart attack making this movie. In terms of the play, lots of people have starred in the play. Um in 1970, which is four years after this came out, apparently Henry Fonda and Richard Burton attempted to recruit Warren Beatty and John Voight for an all-male production, but Edward <laughs> Albee <What>? refused. <laughs> Albe refused. Just imagine Henry Fonda and Richard Burton being like, you know what we need to do? Get Beatty and Voight, and we have no women in this. So, okay. Back the fuck up here because this is, I've literally never heard about this. Yeah. So were they saying let's do an all male version as in the characters were gonna be like gay men? Listen, I don't I think so. This comes from Barbara Lee Horn wrote something called Edward Albee, a research and production source book. And that is the only factoid that I took out of that. But okay. yes, I think it was either supposed... I mean, there's no way they could do it without them being homosexual couples. <laughs> right? Like, how, is that, how would that work? Uh, beyond, uh, okay, now... Oh, my head is spinning now, bitch. <laughs> All right, so are they saying that Henry Fonda and Burton would be the Martha and George? Yes. And that John Voight and Warren Beatty would be the Nick and Honey? Yes. Oh, my God. I would watch that now. Rest in peace, Richard Burton. But I dig him up. I'd watch it right now. Okay, I, I, I gotta figure this out. Warren Beatty would definitely be Honey. Like he, he would be the Sandy Dennis, <laughs> Dennis character. See? John Voight uh, would make a good Nick. Would make a good good George Seagal. I think um, Voight would be Honey because he's got that. Like think about you know the innocence of Midnight Cowboy and his kind of uh, all shucks. That's true. I, I was just thinking hair, but then you know, oh, yeah. I guess I guess Sandy Dennis had blonde hair too, so I guess it didn't matter. I was just I would just love to see Warren Beatty do that <laughs> that scream of when the, with the gun umbrella. <laughs> I <laughs> really I'm shook about Henry Fonda. Yeah. So who would be Martha in I that feel like scenario? Burton would be Martha. Yeah, he'd have to swap, like... Because Burton, famous drunk, I gotta say. <laughs> like, he can't... He, they're both pretty drunk in this film, but I feel like he'd be a better Martha. Yeah, he... Oh, this is so fascinating to me. I'd never heard that before, and yeah, now my life has completely changed. What a watershed moment for my personal life. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Barbara Lee Horn setting us straight. <laughs> wow, wow. And again, in terms of the play, there have been lots of actors like Colleen Dewars and Ben Gazzara did a, a production, a, a Broadway revival of it in 76. Um, Mike Nichols and Elaine May actually starred in a production in 1980. And mm. Diana Rigg and David Suchet starred in a 1996 production in London. And to quote Noel Fielding in one of my favorite seasons of Taskmaster, David Suchet is known as Poirot to you lot. Um, he got David Suchet to sign a broad bean. Suchet on a broad bean. Um, so it's had like these incredible actors who have been influenced by this film. And I think this film was very influential to other filmmakers like, you know, Todd Haynes and like a bunch of people have, have said it was influential to them. And I think it's because it's about marriage in its most awful moments. Um, and it's kind of examining the state of the union when the union has soured 
or when the union is not working. Yeah. And that's evident from the first fucking line. So Elizabeth Taylor walks into, you know, Martha walks into their house and just says, what a dump. <laughs> and she's like a stay at home. She's like a housewife. And she's like, what a dump. Like she doesn't even blame herself in that moment. She's just instantly already being so acerbic about the space they live in. And it comes to, and it, 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 what comes to fruition later in the film as you get closer and closer to these characters and learn more and more about them is she's unhappy with her life overall because she thought that George would be more successful or successful in a way that mirrored her father. Um, So she just walks in and says, what a dump. And it's like a condemnation of their whole life together, (laughs) not just the house they live in. Then she does one of my favorite things in the world. She opens the fridge, blows cigarette smoke right into the refrigerator before grabbing a chicken drumstick and just eating it. Yep. My favorite. Classic eat acting. I will say one of my favorite acting moments. I, you know, it's funny because, you know, that whole like what a dump thing, you know, she talks about it being from a Betty Davis movie. And then I, I forgot, I was like, what Betty Davis movie was she in with Joseph Cotton? And then I was like, I thought it was Petrified Forest, but she was in that movie too, but it was actually called Beyond the Forest. And then I watched the original clip from it and it's funny because Elizabeth Taylor does the thing where she's like, what a dump. And then when you watch actual Betty Davis saying it, she just goes, what a dump. <laughs> like, she doesn't even say it <laughs> in the way that Elizabeth Taylor says it. So it's just really funny when you watch that original clip. You're like, oh, Elizabeth Taylor was not acting like Betty Davis. She was acting like herself. Exactly. Saying a thing that Betty Davis had once said in a film. And then she's like, what is that from? Like, she's like kind of badgering him. Like, what is that from? What is that? And she wouldn't name the film, but she's like, what did, where did I get that? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you that was conjured up in your own head because she didn't say yeah. it like that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. But what's evident from first line, as soon as you meet Martha, is that she is scornful, but it's a kind of scorn that's just laced with disappointment. So her father is the president of the university where George works. And she did expect him to have more success. So she kind of emasculates him constantly. And it's mostly about his inability to be groomed by her father to one day rise in the ranks. Mm -hmm. And there's also something weird about, they keep mentioning their son, and there's something weird about their son that you find out what's weird about it in the last moments of the film. So I'm not going to spoil that, but I will say that it highlights and kind of moderately explains their relationship. So this is a relationship where... They are blatantly honest with each other to the point where they hurt each other's feelings all the time. And they've made up a lot of stories about their relationship to get through it, which I think is really interesting. Like, I've never seen that kind of relationship before, where they are both kind of selling themselves the same lie or the same fiction as a way to understand why they're still together. George is definitely a mean drunk, um, but he's also kind of funny. Like, one of the first things he says to Martha is that he can't stand her subhuman monster yowling. <laughs> <laughs> like, the way they talk to each other is so shocking in the beginning. Yeah. But there is a point in this movie where he says a line that is so fucking funny that it's something I say to myself in my own head all the time. And it is this. I said I'm impressed. What do you want me to do? Throw up? (laughs) (laughs) Like, he is just like, I'm not going to give you what you need or want at any moment, including in my reactions to things. Yeah. And then there's a very funny scene where they eventually take the the night 
gravitates to this bar and he says to to Honey, the Sandy Dennis character, um, you want to dance angel boobs? And it's just so weird and funny. Like, I don't know. I find a lot of what he says very comical. It's either, it rises a line between either being deeply comical or incredibly cruel. And yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah, he's definitely more of the kind of like simmering pot character. Like, and to me that, just was funnier. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, where you're like, here's a guy who's so fucking resentful that he can barely speak. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And when he does speak, so this, you know, they're, they've just left this party. Her dad asked Martha to invite this young couple over, so she does. And we find out that, you know, Nick and Honey are married and they don't have any children. And Nick is the new pro- one of the new professors at the university. And from the moment they arrive, they're trying to leave. They're like, oh, shit, we did not want this. Like, we didn't think we were coming into this. But as the movie goes on, like you were saying that, you know, George is reluctant to talk. But as the movie goes on, there's a scene between Nick and George where they're completely drunk and they're outside and they're talking. And George tells a story about a guy who accidentally shot his mother and then accidentally killed his father in a car accident. And we come to find out there is more relevance to that story than he's letting on. Mm. Um, and Nick reveals that he only married Honey because she he thought she was pregnant, but it turned out to be a hysterical pregnancy. So she wasn't pregnant at all. And as you're watching the movie, there's something for me that hits as you're watching Honey become more and more drunk, which she does very quickly. Yeah. And Nick also becomes drunk, but he's more stoic about it. But there's something about Honey where there's even a a point where she goes to the bathroom and comes back and like the front of her shirt is wet. So you can tell she's been vomiting where you're kind of looking at the progression of time. And there was a point of the movie where where I thought this younger couple is emblematic of what could happen to them. Yep. If we look at the George and Martha relationship. So you're yeah. kind of seeing these, this like, you know, mirror image of time, but it's a very, it's one of those funhouse mirrors where this young, innocent couple is now put into this world. And Martha and George are very inadvertently showing them like this could, this is what could happen to your marriage in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I was going to say, fast forward 20 years and that's them. The The dynamic is the same. It's like, you know, honey is the, hysterical, drunk, and, you know, Nick is the more quiet, reserved, simmering pot drunk, right? Absolutely. And it's like, you know, I mean, to, you know, to me, it's like what you said at the very beginning, which is that, like, why are you going over to a married couple's house at 2 a.m.? That's on you. Like, if you didn't want a glimpse <laughs> into this life, y'all shouldn't have went there, should have said, listen, I understand we got to be nice, but 2 a.m. with this drunk married couple... Hell maybe we no. maybe we just have coffee first. We'll yeah. start with coffee. Because if you're inviting, if a couple is inviting you to their house at 2 a.m., they are either already beyond the pale drunk or they want to swing. Yeah, I was going to say, either they're trying to get you guys in on a group thing or they're about to disintegrate in front of you. So... So you take your cho- your chances with this. Yeah. And it is interesting that there is a point in the movie where after the bar, you know, because the bar is very explosive for both couples. And yeah. Martha and Nick go off together. And Honey is left with George. And 
there's this insinuation that Nick and Martha are having sex, but then it kind of is explained very loosely that he couldn't get it up. So she starts calling him like her houseboy and like she's very cruel to him. And it's almost like sex is a gateway for her to be really mean to men, which I got to say, legendary. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Legendary. She's like, once I've seen your dick, I'm going to rip you apart. (laughs) I will level you. I will rip you to shreds. It's really wild. But yeah, so there's all these insinuations that I think also contributed to the controversy of the movie where it's very sexual. It's about sex and love and time and all of these complicated dynamics. And, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, in the Mike Nichols book, I read that there was a point where she was, like, really proud of her belly and was, like, showing it to Sandy Dennis (laughs) at some point. And Sandy Dennis hadn't done any major films. She'd been a theater actress before this. So this is kind of a, a, you know, an introductory role for her. And what a set to be on for, like, one of your first big film roles. But she... Elizabeth Elizabeth Taylor is just kind of unhinged in this movie. And I think that's part of, you know, the controversy, which I haven't really seen discussed in depth, uh, maybe in an academic sense. But I think that part of the controversy, part of the controversy is that Elizabeth Taylor was very unbridled in this film and was wantonly sexy and was was indicating that she wanted to have sex with somebody, whether it's her husband or Nick or some, she wanted to have sex with somebody. And I think that a lot of her pain, which reminded me of scenes from the marriage, scenes from a marriage a lot, part of her pain in life is that she wasn't exactly sexually compatible with her husband. Like he was much lower energy than she was. Mm-hmm. And in scenes from a marriage, it's kind of the opposite way where he's like, I'm very sexual and, you know, you don't understand me. Um, right. So I think that, I don't know, I just, I think it's interesting that they were able in 1966 to kind of put something like this and commit it to film and have one of the world's biggest stars seen. Yeah, I, I think you cannot overstate the idea of, this was essentially like the first time that Elizabeth Taylor wasn't this ingenue mm-hmm. role. You know what I mean? Like, this was kind of the beginning of her, like, later period of films, of course, I love. You know, you, we've talked yep. about this before. But in that way where, like, she was loud and crass and vulgar and wasted and, like, you know, cussing up a storm and being mm-hmm. overly sexual and that kind of stuff. And I think people hadn't really thought of her in that way like right. before i mean like before this she was in like cleopatra and you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the sandpiper and that kind of stuff which is that you know she was much more demure and much more like classic elizabeth taylor and so i think people were shocked to see her act like that and exactly. look like that and you know and I, and i just i think that is absolutely part of the controversy too you know, Completely. to your point, which is that, you know, here's a woman who is becoming like a real actress. Like maybe this is her dark turn film mm-hmm. and people couldn't fucking handle it. They were like, what in the world is going on here? So. Absolutely. And that's mentioned in the Mike Nichols book as well, where they say, you know, she was at a moment in time when she was filming this movie where she wanted to be taken seriously as an actress, but she knew she was like this kind of 
national like inter- international superstar but she yeah. wanted to be seen as an actress willing to go the distance um yeah. you know to kind of get away from the national velvet <laughs> sandpaper yeah. of it all and kind of move into this place where she's like i'm a fucking adult woman and this is some things that i've i can actually attribute a lot of pain in my life to in my relationship with this man who's also on screen with me you know it, it feels very real in that way and i think that's why people weren't able to really separate the character because they're like, wow, we can imagine you guys having fights like this. Absolutely. <laughs> and she's willing yeah. to put that on screen. Um, but she she acted the fuck out of this role. And she's like yeah. constantly like yelling and shrieking and throwing her body around. And just it's very interesting. It's really dynamic to see her on screen in this way. Yeah, for sure. But I love this movie. I love any movie that's kind of like marriage and kids. Not all is cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think that perspective has been said many times on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. What I think is also fascinating, too, about there are so many... This is a perfect example of where were you when you realized that George Siegel wasn't just the guy from Just Shoot Me and that he had had a career... Okay, sincerely. And was a young person. (laughs) I'm like, the guy from Look Who's Talking acted before Look Who's Talking? And then you realize, dude, he made so many good fucking movies. Yes. Like, then it's like, well, shit, now you got to watch The Hot Rock and Owl and the Pussycat and Born to Win. I don't know if anybody's watching <laughs> George Seagal be a junkie, but that's that's out there for you if you want to watch that. But, like, yeah, I mean, you think, like, to modern audiences, it's, again, that thing where it's like, oh, here's an older actor on a TV show that was actually in a shit ton of classic films and right. was a young actor and you know had a whole career. So anyway, I just I love that completely. He's super young in this film. Yeah, and blonde and yeah, you know. he's so young and it is it is wild because you're like, oh, I was introduced to him as an older man because of my yes. age. Uh huh. I was introduced to him as a much older man, and I did yeah. not know that he had this career until I saw this movie. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I like I love this movie too. I mean, I there are people that I know that don't have the patience for this film, mm. which I get um because it does feel like a play. It does feel like it's drunk people acting for 2 hours. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fascinating. And once you find once you find the dynamics between all these people, you're like, holy shit, this is like a fucking ride, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the reviews I read were written by men and they were so quick to vilify Elizabeth Taylor in this role. And I think that's also the importance of looking, going back and looking at films and having different types of people look at films because, you know, white men by and large are not here for a woman yelling at a man ever. Yeah, <laughs> like in, in the day that this came out, they were like, "This is the worst thing we've ever fucking seen." Yeah, <laughs> so they weren't able to appreciate the type what she was bringing to the scene, and they were very sympathetic towards the Burton character of George and very condemning of the Taylor character. But I think that in its time and even present day, it has definitely showcased something spectacular. Like you said, you're on a ride, and the more that this reveals about the characters as the movie goes on the more interesting that ride becomes. Yeah. I mean, to the to the earlier point about, you know, these like chamber dramas, these chamber films, I think it's actually like 
a pretty difficult task to make people care Mm -hmm. about this very small story, right? Right. Because it's like, for the most part, like, entertainment is usually very, you know, big, you know, lots of characters, lots of, you know, storylines, lots of this, but the idea that you can make people sit there for two hours plus and care about four people, Mm -hmm. ostensibly, is I think that's great, and it's fascinating. It's a testament to how well the play is, the how well the actors are, and how well Mike Nichols makes this movie. I mean, it's Absolutely. I love it. Oh, so. so this is the best episode. I'm so happy that we had this as a double feature. Me too. And we do not have a new episode next week, but the week after that, we're watching two films. Oh my god. I can't even believe we're about to announce these two films. So I am going to try to say this in the proper way, but I am <laughs> not. <laughs> our, our films for next week are Jan Zilman. Is it Vank Vantois? Vantois? Bruxelles from 1975. Let's just say that. Beautiful. I actually was trying to figure out how to say 1080 in French, and now I can't remember. Oh, I can help you. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. The thing about French numbers that sucks is it's like, they do everything fucking backwards. So 1080 is 1080, which is 140-20s. Yes. <laughs> 104-20s or something like that. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> 1080. I, I pretty much know the numbers until, like, 25. So Exactly. <laughs> that's that's. Then sad, it gets but... bonkers. But I, I this is my film for next week, so I had to practice saying it. Well, say um, it, say it right. Why? Why am I announcing it if you can say it? Right? <laughs> Let's hear the correct version. So, my film. I think native French speakers don't come for me. I'm trying my fucking best. Is Jean Dillemont, Vingt Trois Quai du Commerce, Mille Quatre Vingt Bruxelles. There you go. And the other film is The Bad Seed, which is so easy. The Bad yes, Seed. Not the Bad Seed from 1956. Truly an incredible double feature for my money. But um, yeah, so that's um, the next episode after next week. So, all right. If you want to email us, please do so at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And we do have a P.O. box. You can find it on our Instagram. Uh, uh, link tree. Uh, if you want to send us real mail that Millie will open, I will not get real mail from strangers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will open it. Uh, I li- I lived through the 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 fall of the World Trade Center and the panic about anthrax envelopes, and I will never be the same. But you can send it to Millie, and yes. <laughs> you can also- send me your thrax. Sure. And you can find us on our socials at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's right. We also have merch. Please go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. 
And you know our bonus episodes. The new ones are dropping every third Thursday now, every third Thursday of the month. And our old bonus episodes are trickling out. And it's kind of funny to see people listening to the old bonus episodes for the first time and commenting on things that I have long forgotten that we even said. (laughs) Me too. Oh my gosh. Well, as always, Danielle, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it. See you next time. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.